What will the Seahawks do in the draft without a second round pick? And what does the future hold for Pete Carroll in the Pacific Northwest? It's time for an end of season Tuesday mailbag on Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. A special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there, whether you're listening from Medical Lake, Washington, or Knoxville, Tennessee. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. The season is officially in the books as we do each and every year. It's time for an extended Tuesday mailbag. It'll be answering as many of your questions as I can on today's bonus episode, which is brought your way by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started. Now it's time to get rolling here on this bonus edition of Locked On Seahawks. Going to be tackling your questions. It's an extended Tuesday mailbag. A lot of questions from the 12s about the state of the Seahawks, the future of the Seahawks after missing the postseason with a 9-8 and eight record. Got questions on Threads, X, YouTube. Let's get to it. Our first question here coming from Max on YouTube. Without a second-round pick in the upcoming draft, do you anticipate the Seahawks trading back to acquire more draft picks, or is there a position that the Seahawks need to address with that first-round pick? It's still way too early in the game to know what John Schneider's game plan is going to be in the first round, and of course, everything is fluid when you're talking about the draft. If the right player falls to the Seahawks at number 16 or is within striking distance even to move up, if there's a quarterback they really like, for example— Michael Penix had a kind of rough national championship game against Michigan, and that certainly has made a lot of fans dismissive to the idea of drafting him. But if he were to fall into the right spot and the Seahawks liked him, he could be a player that they could bring into groom behind Geno Smith. There could be an offensive lineman or a defensive tackle or even a linebacker. This is a weak linebacker class, however. Those are some positions that certainly could be of interest for the Seahawks as they look at that first round. But right now, I wouldn't be hedging bets necessarily, but I think that it is a strong possibility without that second-round pick that the Seahawks, who are not picking in the top 10 this year for the first time in a couple of years, would move down to try to recoup some picks so they have more ammo on day two, where John Schneider has had a lot of success in recent years finding talented football players. The quarterback situation is really what I think impacts what happens in the middle of the draft, the teams like the Seahawks that weren't in the top 10 but also didn't make the playoffs. What happens with the quarterbacks? There's a domino effect there, especially for a team like Seattle that could be in the market for a long-term quarterback option to groom behind Geno Smith. So it's still way too early in the process. We don't even know all the players that have declared yet. So that creates some interest in terms of the draft right now that – may not necessarily have clarity. So until then, you know, we'll see. But right now, I think that there is a good chance the Seahawks trade down because without a second-round pick, Josh Snyder is going to want to try to add day two picks 
That's how he has operated in the past. This isn't a top 10 pick. They're not picking fifth overall like they did last year. So this is an opportunity to move down when you're probably not going to get a chance to draft one of the blue chip players in this year's class. Next question from Hack and Rod via threads. Other teams develop passable offensive lines from scratch in a season or two. Look at the Rams and Cardinals. Look at Seattle. No running room. No time to throw. A miniature playbook year after year. It's so frustrating. What does Seattle do wrong? So I think it's easy to be frustrated when you consider the Seahawks history, especially the last seven or eight years where they consistently have had an offensive line that has been one of the worst in the NFL. They've struggled to protect. The run game has been very hit and miss. 2018, this run game looked like it did in 2012 and 2013, but then the last couple of years, we just haven't seen consistency in that regard, and that certainly impacts your passing game and impacts your offense as a whole. I do think that injuries were the biggest problem this year for Seattle. Charles Cross, I don't know after his toe injury, I don't know that he was 100% the entire season. There were some good games. There were certainly some rough games. Not having Abraham Lucas out there for the majority of the season, he only played in six games this year. So Seattle had to play Stone Forsythe. They had to play a 41-year-old Jason Peters a couple of starts at right tackle. Jake Curhan started a few games at right tackle. Evan Brown missed some action. Damian Lewis missed a start. Phil Haynes was out. Anthony Bradford, the rookie, was in and out of the lineup. I mean, there was so much upheaval on that offensive line due to injury that I think it's a little tougher to evaluate that group compared to some of the other ones that Seattle has had in the past where they were relatively healthy and they still struggled on the field. This group, considering circumstances, I think did a solid job, although the pressure rate on Geno Smith, that has got to improve. He was constantly dealing with pressure, and he did really well most of the time in spite of that. But I still think the interior offensive line and maybe even right tackle, we don't know where Abe Lucas's knee is at at this point. But I've talked about it on this show. I think, do think there is some concern there on that front because we're looking at a potentially chronic injury, something that was bugging him going into this season. Pete Carroll said that it's not something that surgery is needed for. So, okay, what is the treatment plan for this injury that continues to crop up and he continues to have issues with? So, yeah, there's a lot of question marks there. I do think that this team has done a better job in the last few years drafting offensive linemen. I think Andy Dickerson, considering all the injuries they've had, has done a pretty good job with this unit. At the same time, it's understanding why fans are frustrated because they feel like this group just can't get over the hump to be a championship caliber offensive line to really get the most out of Geno Smith and your two talented running backs that you've got in the backfield. And there's truth to both of those things that I feel like the situation's better than it was, but it's still not where it needs to be. And there's reason for frustration Given Bo Melton's recent success, do you think this was a miss by the Hawks to see the talent and let the Packers steal him off the practice squad? This coming from Derek Davis, 26, via X. Listen, it's always easy in hindsight to look at situations like this, and Bo Melton's playing really well for the Green Bay Packers. Jordan Love's clearly got confidence in him. He was going to him in the biggest game to lock up a playoff spot for the Green Bay Packers, so give him a ton of credit. But Seattle didn't want to lose Bo Melton. They took the risk of putting him on their practice squad. Dariq Young was the better player in training camp in the preseason a couple of years ago. This was kind of a lost second season for him because 
of the hernia injury he had early in the season. And then he was coming back and had missed a couple of games. He did play the last several games this year. Good special teams player, but wasn't able to get many snaps on offense. Nonetheless, he was the better player. You watch it on training camp. You watch it in preseason. He was the better player of the two. So Seattle didn't feel like they could keep both of them. They wanted to continue developing Bo Melton, and that's the risk when you have a player like him that's got great speed, that had a good college career, has the ability to take the top off a of defense. There were some issues with drops in training camp, but if they could clean that up, they felt like there was maybe a chance he could be a contributor down the road. They didn't get that opportunity, though, because he was signed by the Packers late in his rookie season off the practice squad, and the rest is history. So I don't think this is a miss by the Seahawks. That's just an unfortunate reality when you put a player in a practice squad that sometimes there's going to be a chance another team comes calling and brings that guy onto the active roster, and unfortunately that happened. But this was a pick that would have worked out, I think. But Seattle had a lot of depth at receiver Green Bay. They've had some injuries. They've had a lot of turnover at that position. There's a lot of factors to consider. I don't, I don't look at this being a miss for the Seahawks. In fact, it makes Josh Snyder look better in the sense that he's doing this now in Green Bay, and he wasn't good enough to make this football team a couple years ago coming out of Rutgers. Which reserve contract signing are you most excited about for next season? Well, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the picture here. A lot of people are going to expect me to say Levi Bell. He would be second on my list. But because we don't know what is going to happen with Jamal Adams, I, I know that Pete Carroll has insinuated that he's going to be back. They're expecting another offseason. He's going to be much healthier. He's going to be closer to playing at his normal level. But until we know that he is going to officially be here, I mean, that is going to be on the table discussing whether or not they are going to eat a bunch of dead money, move on from Jamal Adams. We don't know where that knee is going to be at, whether he's going to make that recovery that Pete Carroll's hoping for and be the player that he used to be. So Jonathan Sutherland's the guy that pops out to me. This guy was going to make this football team in training camp in the preseason before he got injured on a Hail Mary at the end of practice late in training camp and came down, banged his knee, ended up getting cut in final roster cuts. They brought him back later in the year after an injury settlement. And this guy was able to be on the practice squad at the end of the season, never dressed for a game, but Pete Carroll really likes him. He's a guy that can play both safety spots. He can play up in the box, really heady player, high IQ player that I anticipate is going to get every opportunity, especially if Jamal Adams is not back with the team or is not healthy. This is going to be a great opportunity for him to crash this roster. So he's actually a player I'm really excited about. And Levi Bell will be a close second because he was another player that I thought deserved an opportunity at some point to play on Sundays, and it just didn't happen this year, but looked really good in the preseason and training camp, has some positional versatility, plays with a relentless motor. So those would be the two players that I'm most excited about. Next question from Roger Venu. Is Reek Woolen a part of the future at corner? Tough year for him. He did not advance in his second year or show any willingness to tackle. Was it just a slump? Does he need a better coach in his ear? I, I don't even know that it, the coaching issue is really a play here. This is all about mindset for Reek Woolen. And you look at Sunday's game. There were a couple plays where he came up and made really nice tackles. And then there were a few plays he made business decisions. He has got to be more consistent in that front where he is consistently wanting to play physical football and come up and make tackles. That is one of the top demands that Pete Carroll has in his quarterbacks. With that being said, this kid is still only going to be in his third year. He was a rookie of the year finalist two years ago. He still had pretty darn good numbers in coverage this year. 
Yes, he's absolutely a part of the future. They are going to have to go back to the drawing board. And people have to remember, he had that knee injury that required surgery during the offseason, missed most of training camp, and he was still really raw despite his success as a rookie. Pete Carroll's mentioned that a few times. I agree with him on this. That set him back some. But the mindset stuff, he has got to find a way to be more consistent that front because there have been times where he looks like he's willing to come up and tackle, and then there's other times that's not the case. You need to stop making those business decisions if you're going to play corner on the outside for the Seahawks. But I do still think that he very much is a big part of the defensive future for this football team. And there were still a lot of good plays from him this season as well. Our last question here for this segment, with the defense being so lousy this year, if the Seahawks move on from Clint Hurt, do you think Wink Martindale is a candidate for D.C.? Julian Love and hopefully Leo Williams are two with experience in his system. This is coming from Michael Centalanza on YouTube. This is a really good question, and I've actually seen this asked on social media a few times in the last 24 hours. I've seen a few people that really know ball that have responded to this, and most of them have thought that this would not be a good fit. I'm going to counter against that, and here's why. I understand that Wink Martindale runs a much different defense than what we've seen Pete Carroll run over the years. But listen, Pete Carroll's had three straight in-house coordinators that he's hired, and this defense has never been better than 11th in scoring. They've been 24th or lower each of the last two years under Clint Hurt. It's time to change. It's time to make something happen. And that Giants defense, they won some games late in the season they had no business winning primarily because this defense for New York was getting the job done. They had that bend but don't break attitude, the blitzing, the relentless aggression. I actually think Wink Martindale would be a really fun fit with a healthy Jamal Adams if you can get him back to the level that he used to be at. Pete Carroll seems to still think another offseason under his belt they can get back to that. But Wink Martindale with Jamal Adams and Devin Witherspoon and some of the weapons that Seattle has in their back seven – that can create havoc blitzing. And then, of course, the guys they've got up front. I would be really intrigued by this. And I think Pete Carroll and Wink Martindale could be a really good pair. I just don't know that Pete Carroll is going to be willing to do that, hiring a proven coordinator that's going to want to run his own defense. I just don't know that Pete Carroll is going to want to do that. But I've argued this already. It's time to do so. This defense just hasn't been getting the job done. I would like to see a different identity, a different style and see what they can do in Seattle. So I'd like to see this. I don't think it happens, but I think it would be really intriguing. We're going to continue answering your questions up next here on our bonus edition of Locked on Seahawks, which is brought your way by LinkedIn Jobs. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to have as many top-tier candidates as possible to interview. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team, and you can do it faster and, most importantly, for free. When I was a site manager at SI, LinkedIn Jobs was my go-to to post writing positions to land top candidates. The process was easy and seamless, and I did land some really good writers that went on to make some good money elsewhere. LinkedIn isn't just another board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and hiring is easy to the point that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours in just one day. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. Thankfully, with LinkedIn, the process is intuitive. It's quick. It's easy. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at LinkedIn.com slash LockedOnNFL. That's LinkedIn.com slash LockedOnNFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
You're listening to a bonus end-of-season Tuesday mailbag here on the Locked on Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. A special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. All right, continuing our mailbag here. Another question here linked to Reek Woolen. If we made the playoffs, do you think anybody would be talking about Woolen's junk grab or the cigar smoking after the game? Personally, I'm not bothered by either. It's funny how stuff like this gets blown out of proportion. This question coming from Toxie9754 on YouTube. I think it just really boils down to reading the room. And when when you figure out the context, and listen, if you guys look on my social media, the last thing that I was going to do was throw an uproar about victory cigars without knowing the context about it. And I didn't make any mention about them having these cigars in the locker room just because Julian Love had passed them out. And you have to remember that he recently, he and his wife had the birth of their first child. So they were celebrating that. So I made sure not to jump to conclusions before posting that. And I know a lot of people saw that as a bad look. And I initially in the press room, when I heard about that, the guys were smoking cigars in the locker room. I was like, you missed the playoffs. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But once you get the context of it, I know some people are going to argue, well, why couldn't you have waited until you were getting ready to go on the flight or the day after? Listen, these guys are together all year. Julian Love felt that was the right time. I don't see an issue with that. And what Reek Woolen did, look, the Seahawks won the game and he was showing some fire there whether you agree with the way that he did it or not. You know, the Seahawks have had some other really good players that have done things like that, <clears throat> Marshawn Lynch, over the years. So I don't have as much of an issue with that as what some people do. The cigar thing, I can get why some of the players that used to be on the team and some of the veterans on the team took that uh, distastefully just because, look, we have higher expectations than this, and this suggests that we're okay with this scenario. But knowing the full context, I, I think that it was overblown and and – really wasn't that big of a deal in the scheme of things. It was a celebratory, uh, uh, celebratory guitar or guitar, celebratory cigar in the locker room. Not one that was celebrating missing the playoffs and winning the game in week 18 that ultimately didn't matter. Next question, real simple note to Sue on threads. Any thoughts about Pete Carroll's future? Listen, this is where I have stood on this for a few weeks. And if you've listened to our podcast, I now have, I am of the impression, I just mentioned this answering the Wink Martindale question earlier in the show, but I'm of the impression that Pete Carroll, in order to make this work, he's got to be willing to go outside of his own system to bring in some new ideas, some fresh ideas to try to get this defense on track. Because, you know, finishing 24th or worse two years in a row with the amount of money and the draft picks they've invested in this defense is inexcusable. And you're supposed to be a defensive head coach. I am a big fan of Pete Carroll. I do think he's a really good head coach, but I do wonder about the process that he has gone through time and time again, hiring internally. It just hasn't yielded the results that you would expect. So going outside the box, if I'm Jody Allen, that's something I'm telling him, Hey, we want you back for another season, but this needs to be done. You need to go out and get a proven defensive coordinator that is from another system that's going to bring in some new wrinkles, some new ideas. Don't just talk about new ideas. Bring somebody in that you know is going to do it, like a Wink Martindale. There's other options out there that would make sense too. But 
go get another really good mind that you let run this defense and you do your job as the head coach, managing the culture and making sure your guys are ready to go. That to me is the biggest argument. I expect he's going to be here next year, but I think the best chance for Seattle to be able to get over the hump, they need to get an infusion of ideas on defense. Then that comes with a proven commodity at the coordinator position that isn't an internal hire. Go get somebody that has a proven track record of coordinating quality defenses in the NFL and team him up with Pete Carroll. I think that is the recipe to get this team back on track defensively where they need to be. You guys have talked about a possible lack of focus commitment on defense. Why has Pete not been able to correct that? Does it go beyond coaching? Is it a player-to-player accountability issue? This is coming from Ian Brooks on YouTube. I think it's a really good question that, unfortunately, with me not being in the locker room most of the time, I don't know that I am qualified to necessarily answer this. Now, from my viewpoints on the way things have played out this past season, there have been some games where it seems like you know players have checked out a little bit, and that tells me the first thing that always pops in my mind when I see that is the coach's message resonating with the players. And we've heard some of the guys from the Legion of Boom era, Michael Bennett in particular, the message sometimes gets stale, and in that case, you got to move on from some guys. So I'm wondering if this may be a case where the Seahawks will do some house cleaning to try to get some players in that are going to buy in a little bit more. You know, they've got some guys in their roster that the buy-in is not an issue, but there's certainly some players you got to wonder about whether the fit has been necessarily there. So I think this is a little bit of a blend of everything. This has been a culture that has really held up well for more than a decade. So I don't think that anybody needs to overreact here and say, hey, this culture is not working anymore. But you got to wonder if there's some components there behind the scenes that weren't working. Maybe it's a uh, assistant coach that isn't reaching certain players either. I mean, there's got to be something an underlining cause to that. I'm just not going to be able to answer, say, I, I sincerely know this is the reason why this is happening. I think there's some things going on there in terms of chemistry that just didn't work out where coaching wasn't reaching the players, whether it's at the assistant level, where's the head coach level, a little bit of both. That's something the Seahawks are going to have to reevaluate. Pete Carroll's going to have to reevaluate as he tries to put a staff together for this upcoming season. And we'll see if there's any big shakeups that end up being announced in the next few days. Our next question coming from the real coach red. Do you think the Seahawks quarterback room will be the same going into next year? Or do you think the Seahawks draft a young quarterback and try to keep lock on a two year, 16 to $18 million deal to be the security blanket bridge quarterback? So I understand Drew Locke had that big win that he orchestrated against the Philadelphia Eagles, and I thought he did some really good things in a couple starts that he had. He played pretty well against the 49ers. With that being said, I think it would be a major mistake if the Seattle Seahawks moved on from Geno Smith to save some bucks and go with Drew Locke as their starter and then draft a quarterback behind him. I'm all on board with the idea if the right QB is there, you can draft him to groom behind Geno Smith. I just would not be giving Drew Locke a contract worth eight or nine million dollars per year based off of two starts and just throwing the dice, rolling the dice and hoping that that translates to an entire season. I would not be doing that. I think Geno Smith has really been a quality starter for the Seahawks. And I thought he played as well as any quarterback in the league the last four weeks. The team didn't even protect him very well. And he found a way to have eight touchdowns, one interception, led a couple game-winning drives. He led the league with five game-winning drives. 
that to me is far from the biggest need for the Seahawks. If the right QB is there for them to draft early, then of course I'm not against that. I like the idea of getting your future franchise quarterback, but I'm not drafting a QB just to draft a QB. It's got to be the right situation, the right player falling to me. And I don't think having Drew Locke as the starter in that situation would be the right situation for the Seahawks. I just don't agree with that rationale. Our next question coming from MRED315. Might you be anticipating any immediate Seahawks assistant coaching changes? It's understandable and all bets are off when other new league head coaches are named and staffs are assembled. So in the past, we've seen Pete Carroll fire Brian Schottenheimer just a few days after his final end of season and press conference with reporters. So a lot of times when there's going to be a move like this, it happens pretty quickly. I would think that Clint Hurd is the one that is on the biggest hot seat. I don't know that Pete Carroll is going to be willing to move on from him after just two seasons, although these were two really rough defensive seasons where the players did not seem to respond well to the coaching. They really struggled to execute properly with their responsibilities on their schemes. So there's certainly reason to look into making a change there, as I've mentioned, and getting somebody from the outside, preferably sort of place him. I would think that that is the name that most likely goes first. If there's going to be a major domino, Shane Waldron maybe would be second on that list. The offense did play better down the stretch overall, and he had a really solid year last year. So He's at least got a better track record going for him than what Clint Hurt does. But whichever one of those guys, if either one of them goes down, then I could see some other significant ripple effects on that side of the football with assistance underneath the head coach and the coordinator. So that's really what we need to see first. Is there going to be a big domino falling after that? How does the rest of this coaching staff come together for the 2024 season? And our last question here coming from Ian Brooks. For me, at the moment, the Seahawks' top four needs are inside linebacker, right tackle, interior offensive line, and defensive line. What are your top four? So based on the roster as constructed right now, without accounting for free agency and things like that, inside linebacker is absolutely near the top of the list because Bobby Wagner, Jordan Brooks, and Devin Bush, none of them are under contract for next year. And the guys behind him, John Radigan, Patrick O'Connell, guys like that don't have experience. And Nick Bellore is in his mid-30s. He's not going to be starting for you on defense. So that is a position right now. They don't have a clear starter that is going to be under contract. And I think right tackle, I mentioned earlier, with Abe Lucas's injury situation, that is something worth monitoring for 2024 and beyond. If the Seahawks believe that he's going to be able to get past this, then obviously it's no longer a huge need. But this is a concerning injury for him that potentially is chronic. So they could be looking at the tackle spot. I think interior offensive line tops the entire list, though. The Seahawks have a lot of questions there. They have had questions there for more than half a decade. It's been a revolving door. Damien Lewis has been a four-year starter. He's been the most consistent guy, but he's a free agent. You don't know if he's going to be coming back. Are you going to pay the price tag that it takes to retain him? Has he earned that? contract with play that's generally been good but not great center position Evan Brown's free agent do you believe in Olu Oluwatimi are you going to go out and get somebody else and then the right guard spot is wide open Anthony Bradford struggled for most of his starts as a fourth round rookie he could take a big leap next year Seattle could put faith in that 
Phil Haynes just hasn't been able to stay healthy, but he would be fairly cheap to bring back if you want to have him for depth. This is just a group that needs to be upgraded. It has needed upgrades for a couple of years. Seahawks don't have a lot of money to be able to do that. So I think early in the draft that you got to be emphasizing that. And then if you lose Leonard Williams in free agency, obviously that becomes a really expensive rental that you made at midseason that didn't yield a playoff berth. I think Seattle's going to do everything they can to bring him back. But if you don't, I think defensive line, even with him back, you got to get some bigger bodies. You got to get some guys in that 330, 340 range that can really inflict damage in the trenches and be difficult to move. They just lack that guy. A healthy Brian Monet coming back would certainly help, but I think they've got to be looking at the bigger bodies on the defensive line as well, and that would be where I'm at. Safety would be the next spot down if Jamal Adams is not going to be able to come back or they're not going to bring him back because of his cost and injuries, and Quadre Diggs is going to be a free agent after next year. I think that's a position they've got to start looking towards the future a little bit as well as always you can follow me on x and threats at corbin smith nfl a special thanks to all the 12 for tuning in as always make sure to subscribe and follow locked on seahawks on youtube and wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode rob rang and i'll be teaming up for an end of season tuesday episode coming up later today 5 p.m pacific time we'll be looking at what went wrong for the seahawks and starting to take a peek at the offseason. Of course, we'll also break down Seattle's upcoming opponents as well. Jam-packed episode. Make sure you're listening in. We'll see you later on Tuesday. Go Hawks.